when, when I was in college at LSU, the, they were beginning to move toward more online platforms for everything related to your classes. So I got on campus and I had a trig class with, uh, in a thousand person auditorium. And you would go in there, watch slides on trigonometry, and, which is the perfect way to learn math, right? And then um, afterward you would have a, a smaller class with a, you know, a master's level student um, later in the week. And then any tests, any, any work was actually done on the computer. Tests were taken in a computer lab where you, know, you were timed, you would click submit and immediately get your score back, which is such a gift, right? Um, so one of the, one of the uh, tests, the major tests I took, I, I was really nervous about it. When you're put, you know, submitting it online, there's no, oh, you did a good job on the work there, but you got the decimal point wrong. No, there's none of that, right? So um, I was prepping a lot, went to visit the master's student, you know, and he said, it looks like you're doing pretty well. I think you're going to do all right. So then I went into the computer lab and got my score back. I spent the full two hours allotted on the test, clicked submit, and got my score back. Anybody want to guess? I, didn't, I couldn't hear it. What's that? 100. No. No. If you half that, 50. 50. I was really mad. <laughs> I was like between cursing and crying. I didn't know which of those to do. My dorm was on the other side of the campus, so I had this long walk to process what had just happened. And um, man, I was really mad. And there was this, uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I started to sort of pray. And it was, God, why? <laughs> Just, why is it like this? That I tried so hard. And somehow, in the midst of my prayer, and I don't remember exactly how it happened, there was this realization, like I was mad at myself, and the computer, and the system, everything. And there was this realization God's not that mad. <laughs> and that sort of made me mad too. <laughs> I was mad because I hadn't done well. And God was like, it was as if there was this small voice saying, it's okay. It's going to be all right. And that was tough, realizing, and, and it's something I continue to process through the years. Every now and then, it's this reminder God's main desire for me is not my performance. That's not his main concern. Maybe that's not a hard thing for some of you, but for many people it is. What is it that God does want of us? What is it that he wants of us? I was at least halfway assuming that what God wanted of me was to make good grades in math. <laughs> And I know that's not a terrible thing, but it certainly wasn't the most important thing to God. And I'm sure that a lot of you have made your own assumptions about what God wants of you. Perhaps hard work. I mean, that's a good thing, right? Surely God wants that of us. Morality. To be a good parent. To be a good child. So on. Our passages this morning, as, when you bring them all together... They point to one main thing that God desires from people, from us. 
It's our attention. Our undivided attention. Mary Oliver was a poet. And Kelly actually talked to me about Mary Oliver several years ago, and I started reading her and have enjoyed her a lot. Um, But one of the things that Mary Oliver wrote is that attention is the beginning of devotion. I'm going to say that again. Attention is the beginning of devotion. And she's capturing in that phrase the reality that time spent with someone or something signifies love. Devotion. And the Scriptures this morning, are, they, all of them call us into a concrete and undivided devotion to God through Jesus. And this is not simply a spiritualized devotion. This is where we have to be careful. If we think that prayers on the go or warm thoughts about God signify devotion. <laughs> That's not the case. It's a concrete devotion that God is asking of us. Giving Him our undivided attention is the only way that we can actually live in relationship with God. So Psalm 46, which Levon read for us, it begins by asserting God's presence in our lives. This is not a question, is God present? The answer is always yes. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of need. You know, the most frequent command in the Bible is do not be afraid. And the promise that often backs up that command is I am with you. Presence. I'm there. Emmanuel, God with us. The problem arises in the dissonance that we experience in life between God's promise of His presence and the visible circumstances of our lives. The chaos that swirls around us or the chaos that swirls within us. The rise and tide of our own emotions and feelings about life and ourselves and how people feel about us. So the writer of the psalm observes the world around him in this way. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms are overthrown. We could say similar things like that about our world, about our own inner lives. How are we to see the presence of God when all around us it looks so bleak? The key key command in this psalm is, be still. Be still. Stillness is this concrete way of giving exclusive attention to God, especially for people who struggle to be still, who struggle to stop trying to save the world, to save ourselves, or to save others. Stillness. I laughed this week when I read the way a British writer comments on this verse. I sometimes am a sucker for just British phrases. He says, Be still is not in the first place comfort for the harassed, but a rebuke to a restless and turbulent world. Quiet. In fact, leave off. God is saying, stop trying to save the world. This is my job. This concrete command to be still actually points back to another 
uh, perhaps the most significant moment in the entire history of Israel. When their entire existence was at stake. They had just left Egypt. But Pharaoh, the volatile king of Egypt, regretted allowing them to leave. So Israel stood with a sea in front of them and the armies of Egypt behind them. And they're in a panic. They're angry that they ever allowed this prophet Moses to talk them into leaving Egypt. So Moses tells them, though, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The world, our whole world is about to end. And God says, you have only to watch and be silent. Really? Stillness and silence, these, according to Scripture, are the concrete ways of giving God our attention, of entrusting ourselves to Him, of entrusting the world to Him, entrusting everyone else to Him too. In Isaiah, just after the passage that Gail read for us, God says to people in distress, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. So if attention to God looks like stillness and silence, returning and rest, would you say that you are giving your attention to God? Would you? Now, our passages from the Gospel of Luke and the letter to the Hebrews only reinforce this desire from God. Even His insistence that we give Him our undivided attention. So in Luke, a person asks Jesus whether only a few people will be saved in the end. I really wonder, what answer do you think this person was hoping for from Jesus? Like, did they have people that they didn't want to have to be with in the end? What, what, why, why are they asking this question? It's a really impersonal question if you think about it. It's a question that's more about statistics than it is about people who have names. Will so-and-so be saved? Will I be saved? Jesus' answer to the person turns the question back to the, the key uh, piece to this, people. Actually, he turns the question back on whoever is listening. As if the actual question, the question that really matters is, will you be among the saved? Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. So to the person who asks, how many will be saved? He says, to them. Strive to enter through the narrow door. And you know, in another place, Jesus says, I am the door. Relationship to Jesus, giving Him our undivided attention, is the narrow pathway to life, Jesus is saying. Me, I am the doorway. Pursue me to find life. Now, I think a lot of us wonder whether we should be upset or disappointed that Jesus says it's a narrow door. 
As Christian, many Christians might be ashamed if non-Christians would say, your Lord said that only a few could get through, the, through this doorway. Should we be ashamed and a little bit downcast that our, our Lord Jesus spoke in this way? That the door is so narrow? Others, I think, have helpfully pointed out that narrowness is actually a positive and essential feature of life in general. So, take our bodies for an example. Narrow arteries and vessels enable blood to travel through our bodies, to and from our heart, and they give us life, right? And if our arteries and blood vessels were to open up and allow our blood to uh, flow freely— Maybe uh, Joe, as a medical professional, could tell us that I think that's called hemorrhaging, and it means that you're dying. So when we talk about what it means to be on a path of life, to be wide open and free actually means that you're on a path to death. But to be on a narrow path means that you're on a path to life. Having lots of options and a cafeteria approach to God doesn't lead us to growth in relationship with Him. It only means wasted energies in relationship with Him. Only the narrow way of Jesus, of undivided attention on Him, ensures that we experience eternal life, the life of God. This means that we do have to say, no to other doors and other possible pathways that we could follow because those could have us miss the right door, the true door. So in Hebrews, we're told why Jesus deserves our undivided attention. Because He is the mediator of a new covenant, a new kind of relationship to God. And his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What, what does that mean, that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel? Well, Abel was an innocent man. And Abel died the first physical human death that we hear of in the Bible because of his brother's jealousy. Think of how Jesus' death is very similar to Abel's. He is an innocent man who dies at the hands of jealous men. But unlike Abel, Jesus is raised from death. So his blood can speak not only of innocence, like Abel's does, but also of forgiveness and freedom from sin and death. He becomes the firstborn from the dead so that His blood also speaks of the resurrection, the hope and healing that are promised for all who would follow Him and seek Him on the way to life. So it's not only that God wants our undivided attention, it's also that God deserves our undivided attention. The writer of Hebrews closes by encouraging the church in this way, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now the symbol of being, God being a consuming fire means that He seeks to energize, that He seeks to bring life through His own power, but He also burns up everything that does not live in Him and seek its life in Him. 
Now, how do we, in the midst of our lives, give God our undivided attention? You know, I I realize that we are not monks. I realize that. But the Bible was not written to monks, and it still tells people, be still and be silent. Periods of stillness and silence are at the heart of a life of devotion. A life that seeks to give its undivided attention to God. Stillness and silence have always been difficult for people, but they are more difficult now than perhaps they have ever been. It's been said that the greatest threat to faith today might not be hedonism or of science somehow disproving God, that the greatest threat to faith today is actually distraction. Isn't this ridiculous? The greatest threat to a life with God today is a computer that we can put in our pockets. Do not underestimate the power that distraction has over your life. There's a a, a writer today, Sherry Turkle, who has said, who's described modern family life as alone together. Because even though perhaps we are living in existence with other people, we are separated from them by the things that we constantly hold in our hands. We do not connect to each other in deep and in lasting ways. And also, we do not connect to God. We're all perpetually distracted, even with good things. Facebook feeds that update us on our friends and needs of the world. These are good things, but we are distracted by them from the main things. In our distraction, we forget God and His still small voice becomes impossible for us to hear. You know, mindfulness is our newest attempt at trying to regain our own attention. Uh, One writer says that weed is a form of self-medication for an era of mass distraction. It seeks to give us an easy form of contemplation in a world that when we no longer have the ability to sit still, quietly, and contemplating God and listening to one another. God is with us, but somehow we've become blind and deaf to His presence in our lives. This is why it's actually good news that Jesus says the door is narrow. The reason that it's good news is because we have been given clarity in the midst of the confusion and distraction of our modern and always connected lives. All of life does matter to God. It's true. God cared about my trig class. He cares about all of your life. Your family, your work, Your loneliness, He cares about it. But the things that matter, matter most in the context of a relationship to Jesus. It's as if we look through the lens of Jesus and we can see all of life as it's meant to be. As we are meant to be concerned about it. The greatest thing, I don't think this, I'm overspeaking when I say this, the greatest thing that you can do with your life is spend time in silence and stillness before God. And the worst thing that you can do with your life is allow it to simply drift. 
by allowing yourself to be distracted by peripheral concerns of life. When we sit in stillness and in silence before God, when we contemplate Scripture and we contemplate God in prayer, we receive His love and His mercy and we're sent back into life with the power of His Spirit, with God who is a consuming fire. And even if you're not a Christian, this is relevant. Because stillness and silence are the way that you can do what Jesus says. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Perhaps you don't know if Jesus is really the way. What better way to find out than submitting yourself to stillness and silence and saying, God, I want to be open to you. Show me. Show me. Attention. It is the beginning of a life of devotion. And this is what God wants of us. So, again, the question, if stillness and silence are the measure of attention of whether you are devoted to God, are you walking in stillness and silence in your own life? Are you setting aside times in which you simply sit before God and you listen for His voice? And if you're not, will you begin doing that? This is one of the greatest things you can do with your life. Is be attentive to the God of, who created all things, who created you, who loves you, and wants relationship with you. Amen.